Is this thing on? Cool. Hello, and welcome to the next episode of Uncultured, the podcast. I'm your host, Kripa, here to add a little bit of colour to your wigs. This week's guest is none other than the man, the myth, the legend, Neil Kolhatka. He is one of Australia's biggest comedians. He's got a huge following across the world and paved the way for a lot of brown comedians in the comedy scene. Self-proclaimed controversial comedian, I sit down and talk to Neil about what place political correctness has in comedy, what his parents thought about him pursuing comedy full-time, and I ask him for advice. Anyway, I'm going to shut up now. Here's Neil. Uh. Neil, thank you so much for hopping on Uncultured, the podcast. No worries. Thank you for having me. I should probably preface, I have this background because I couldn't figure out how to get rid of the virtual background and I just can't get rid of it. <laughs> it, is not, it isn't just a visual thing. Okay, because I was going to say, it looks quite good but you actually can't get rid of it yeah this is not where I am this is where I'd rather be nice how was your day today today it's been good I've been surprised actually I think because I went through lockdown last year I've um I I, I've realized some strategies to put in place that help you stay in a routine so I did some reading in the morning and then went for a walk had a late late breakfast a brunch and did some work and here I am. So you're one of the lockdown like people who actually has their lives together. I feel like there are two types of people in lockdown and you're one of the good ones. This time around I am. I'm like the 3 p.m. wake up. Last time around I was like cooking, I was working out and this time I'm just like I'm just trying to get through the day, waking up at three, going to sleep at like three. Well, you know what? Waking up at three actually seems reasonable compared to some of the friends I've spoken to. Really? Yeah. Uh, I I think they just go, I think the days end up being about 28 to 30 hours. So every night they go to sleep six hours later each time. Yeah. Everything catches up. I've been like taking melatonin because I'm just like, it's gotten to a point where I'm like, 6am getting to bed. So I'm like, I need to take some meds at like eight and like get to sleep by nine. It's kind of work. Yeah. Cause I've heard good things about melatonin. Does it actually work? I sometimes take the, uh, what is it? Valerian, that one. Is that the same? I feel, is that just a different brand? No, I, I don't think, I think they're different. Uh, I think they're actually different substances. I think, um, I know Valerian's a tree root. Interesting. You got to take it an hour before you sleep and it just knocks you out. But I still managed to somehow come back to my usual nocturnal cycle that um, that I'm surviving, which is the best I can be doing right now. <laughs> That's good. You're getting through. I, the, the funny thing is because I don't have shows, I'm actually in a better position to get into a consistent routine Yeah. because when I'm performing, I'm often back home by midnight and then I need an hour or two to to wind down. Um, so I, I don't have a 9am call time anywhere and that next day ends up as a sleep in, um, and you just get into a pattern of sleeping in some days and, and, and waking up early some other days, but no, because of lockdown, ironically enough, I'm actually in a better position to, to stay in a consistent sleep routine, but we'll see how long it lasts. So I wonder if we're still in this in another month, I don't, I might give up. Honestly, I feel like 
I feel like we're going to be a, a touch wood, but I feel like we're going to be in this position until about Christmas if cases keep going up the way they are. <laughs> I know it's really painful. Well, we lost at Melbourne last year, so this is karma. Where whereabouts in Sydney are you? Um, so I'm in Glebe, okay. but I'm locking down with my family in Carlingford. Okay, okay. So you're not in yeah. in in the southwest in the in the hot zone. No, no. But I am technically on the edge of the Parramatta LGA, so I am locked down. Okay. Yeah. What about you? I'm in Burwood. Um, so right. that's actually not a um, what do they call it? An at-risk LGA. I'm sure it's a matter of time. I got my vaccine this morning, though, my second dose, so I'm COVID-resistant. Are you now uh, part of the 5G network? Yeah, that's it. That's it. I feel like an Avenger. You're part of uh, <laughs> Bill Gates' slave army now? It's all, it's all a conspiracy. <laughs> but also, we could talk about COVID for an hour, or we could talk about comedy. Um, I think whatever, whatever direction. I think I'm, I'm I'm pretty done with the COVID conversations that have been transpiring. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, Neil, you have 143k followers on Instagram. You have 1.2 mil on TikTok and half a million on Facebook. All of us kind of grew up seeing your face on our Facebook feeds. I think that your career has just been so wildly amazing, and I'm really keen to talk to you about it thank you i love talking about myself so let's go every comedian (laughs) humble as always yeah (laughs) what led you to be who you are so what were your passions when you were growing up i uh was always interested in performing and acting um throughout Mm. my adolescence so i spent a lot of afternoons after school going to drama classes and uh, improvisation classes and, and things like that so i always had a knack for impressions and uh, specifically character acting, uh, that really was my biggest passion. So I'm very lucky I, I, I'm able to live out my passion and, and do what I love. Aside from that, I I like sport. I like video games. What an average teenage boy would be into, except for the drama and the performing. That definitely was my biggest passion growing up. Yeah, it is. I think that kind of stuff is Firstly, super unique for a guy to be into growing up and for you to know that that's what you had a knack for is pretty special. And I think the other aspect of it is the fact that you are South Asian. And I think a lot of us aren't necessarily propelled into that Mm. kind of direction. And so what I'm curious about is what was your family like and were they your typical kind of South Asian family? Were you connected to your culture? So I was very lucky. Well, well, when it came to pursuing an artistic career, I was very lucky. My parents were very supportive and I haven't talked to them at length about it, but I think they almost rebelled against their strict parents and they said, you know, we're not we're not going to put the same pressure on our children. I mean, there was still uh, what I would call a, a healthy degree of pressure. They wanted me to do well in school and they definitely wanted me to complete school and preferably go to university. But even when I dropped out of university, they, they weren't uh, they, they had some minor reservations, but they they let me live my life. And I'm very thankful for that. Were they second gen? Were they did they grow up here? My mum did. And my dad came here when he was 24, I right, think. Yeah. Mid 20s. Uh, so my mum is quite westernised. Well, my dad is is too. He always was fond of Western culture and actually had his own 
re- rebellion against Indian culture. I, I think I don't want to put words in their mouths, but I, I think that's sort of what transpired. So it was, I guess, a convenient concoction of them being still instilling, I think, some of what I would perceive as the positive values of uh, South Asian culture, um, value for education and, you know, d- discipline and, um, yeah. but also allowing me uh, some, some freedom and some, the, the ability to not be constrained by uh, familial pressures and, and to pursue a career in acting and, and comedy. So I'm, I'm very grateful for that. I guess growing up here does have, um, it's kind of like how we would expect to bring our kids up almost in a way, kind of an amalgamation of like the typical South Asian parent plus what we kind of have experienced as, you know, first um, gen, like Australian, like Australian born um, Indians. Mm. And so I think that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that 100%. And I'm sure you've answered this question a million times, but kind of to set the scene, what, what, pushed you into comedy. So you said you were into drama and improv and a lot of people that kind of start doing that in high school don't necessarily push through. I didn't realise you dropped out of uni actually. What were you doing at uni? Economics. Ah, so not classic. very artistic at all. Yeah, that's a classic. Uh, well, not really, it's not medicine or engineering, but it's it's a bit below that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what made you drop out? Well, I uh, started... Uh, generating an online audience and I was able to do comedy full-time and I was only about a semester into my degree so I thought well I I started just by deferring it for one year and then I realized well I may as well give everything to to this pursuit and if I ever need to I can always come back to uni and I haven't had to yet so and you can't necessarily guarantee that you can come back into comedy after generating an audience like that whereas uni is kind of always going to be there definitely definitely I wanted to ride that wave of momentum and it was always my dream to to be a full-time comedian and wow I achieved I was I was very lucky I achieved it a lot faster than even I anticipated thank you to the internet thank you YouTube (laughs) yeah yeah and what pushed you into comedy in particular so, uh, yeah, as I said, I started off uh, just being interested in acting and performance and I was always a good public speaker. I was never good at writing essays. I was always very convoluted, tend to be just excessively, I don't know, grandiloquent or whatever. But Is that a word? Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Look it up. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> but uh, then I, for whatever reason, when I was in front of an audience, just had a bit of a talent for uh, grabbing people's attention and I was always good at impressions and I would just impersonate family members and people at my school. Yeah. And it just naturally progressed. I thought, well, I'll try character acting. I was good at that. Uh, well, I'll try improv because a, a huge part of improv is character acting. And and then I'll try stand-up. And I just fell in love with each art form until it got to stand-up and, and comedy in general. Yeah. You're on your own room now as well, Neil and Friends. Um, how's that going? Obviously in lockdown, it's kind of... Yeah, it's on. It's in an unfortunate, obviously on hiatus now. But yeah, that's a room I actually started before the first lockdown. That's been really good. Uh, I started it originally just because I wanted regular content and I thought if we try a few 
uh, panel show style games. That's uh, some extra videos for me to post, but it, but it just grew from that. And then um, a lot of other comedians want to be a part of it now. And I like the consistency of it. Uh, I always, you know, I, I enjoy going on a tour once a year, but this this allows me to get into a better routine. And I also just kind of like the intimacy of performing to 50 people each week. Um, it's a different, yeah, it's a different environment. It's a different, it's a different feel. It's a different skill, I think. But all in all, it's been fantastic. I've loved it. That's great. I think kind of it's almost like a quasi whose line is it anyway kind of vibe, um, which I used to binge so much back in high school. So Yeah, thank you. Uh, I think there's definitely a, I guess a hole in the in the market because now with a lot of stand-up comedy on on TV being, well, in my opinion, quite sanitized. And then I guess on the internet, it's all it's just a free-for-all. I thought there would be room for a, a kind of a modern version of a whose line is it anyway, or a or an early 2000s comedy central type show. Uh so that's the ultimate goal with it. Um if once we're out of lockdown, that's uh, that's what I'm planning to do. Release it as a sort of weekly half-hour show. Oh, that'd be, that'd be brilliant! And it's so quintessentially Australian. The comedians you have are so quintessentially Australian, and I think that's something yeah, that we don't definitely, have. definitely. We we have so many brilliant comedians. There's just not a lot of opportunities for them to get their name out there. And then the established comedy scene can be quite political, and there are very there are very few outlets for them and you know, there's the ABC and, and SBS, but I think they can have a tendency to uh, not take too many risks, as do the commercial networks, because they've got, you know, large sponsorship base that they don't want to piss off, but also they need to appeal to a much larger demographic. Uh, so I think now's the time for uh, all comedians who are primarily found on the internet to kind of band together and, and make their own product and and i hope neil and friends can can maybe be the catalyst for something like that and i think it's very on brand with the way that your comedy and your personality has really disrupted the comedy scene there is a lot of i don't know how to pronounce the word but like homogeneity homogeneousness um that kind of tends to happen over time when you're exposed to the same comedians and I guess on the back of that my next question is that you've built um, a career which has been in some ways a revolt against left-wing authoritarianism what are your thoughts on work culture and and does political correctness have a place in comedy well my thoughts First of all, I think the word woke has just become, you know, it's up to anyone's interpretation. And if we're talking about, say, cancel culture or what you were talking about, I guess the, the group think in, in the established comedy scene, I don't like it. I never have. I can see why it came about. I think it's a reaction to a lack of sensitivity in, in the past to people of different ethnicities and of different sexual orientations. But I definitely think the pendulum swung way too far one way you know there's a, there's definitely a uh, hesitancy to take any artistic risks and I think when you take artistic risks whether it's in comedy or any art form for that matter sure you can fall flat on your face and make something that's just horrifically offensive but you also have the capacity to make something that is truly magical and pushes the boundaries um, so it's a trade-off I think if we can if we can lessen some of the restrictions 
that currently exists. Sure, they may that may mean that more offensive content goes unchecked, but it also means that better content, boundary-pushing content, and transformative content can be generated. So that's my general view of, I guess, what you could call woke culture. I think it stifles creativity. Uh, what was the second? What was the second part of your? Oh, does political correctness have a place in comedy? Um, it 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 does insofar as we're always going to have ethical codes and and there's a certain responsibility you take as a as a comedian, particularly a comedian with an audience, that you are then exposing yourself to to criticism. But it should never go. My problem is not with criticism per se, but with things like deplatforming. In some situations, people actually being fired. I don't think that sort of political correctness has a place in in comedy. I, I can see why the incentive structures allow that to happen. Uh, if if you run Netflix or if you own a brand associated with a comedian that is controversial, then of course you need to distance yourself from um, those sorts of people. But I think that actually separates the, all the purest comedians from commercial ones because. You know, every time you take a sort of commercial deal, or you get in bed with Netflix or or, or TV in in some way, you are then you're limiting what you're able to say. And they may they may say no, that's not the case. But realistically, you are. Having said that, there's always going to be boundaries, even when you have an online audience. You can't piss them off too much. You can't can't disenfranchise everyone who follows you. So look, there'll always be some degree of political correctness and, and sort, of, sort, of, sort of cultural taboos and, and limits. But look, I think right now it's 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 too stifling. I mean, I'm biased, obviously, because I am a comedian. Not only am I a comedian, I'm a, I'm, can be a controversial one, but it's, it's just, it's too restrictive now. I think as society changes and people's rights are more acknowledged over time and behaviour kind of has to change to catch up with political movements, I do think that it's important to police ourselves. But I also do understand where you're coming from, because I think there is an element of risking over-policing ourselves and not knowing where the goalposts are. Can you elaborate on the whole political correctness versus damaging someone's reputation or firing them from a job? I think you mentioned that before. Social media has given millions of people a voice that they never really had before you can write letters to the editor or something like that but you know you can't really have direct access to to a famous comedian who was on tv 20 years ago so a lot of people may have actually had uh, reservations or qualms with what people were saying in established media but they just didn't have the access to say that to them and now we do so we may have a skewed interpretation of how offended people really are um Look, I personally don't like it, but I, I think that's just a sort of natural uh, consequence for the technology we have uh, where it's going to seem like a, a lot of people are more offended than ever before when really a lot of people just have access to voice their opinion than ever before. And then that's probably had an effect of then encouraging other people to voice their opinions, sure. But again, I'd, I'd like to just make a distinction there between, say, criticism um, versus deplatforming or firing someone, and and that those two in particular are the things that I think we need to be wary of. Look, if a group of people on Twitter are upset at something you've said, I think you need to first look. It's it's fair to look inwards and say, okay, what did I say? Did did I not think about it as as well as I could have? But 
if you think they're overreacting, well, that's life. Some people are going to disagree with your content and, and find it objectionable, but it's very different when they go and, you know, they'll, I know instances of people calling up venues where someone was going to perform and trying to smear the the venue so the venue has no choice but to cancel the show and other sponsors or advertisers that were involved with the said comedian or, or, or singer who they start to feel the brunt of the uh, Twitter mob so they dissociate from, from the person. That's when it goes too far for, for me. Um, you called yourself a controversial comedian. Has that kind of impacted the way that you've practiced comedy? Have you? How do you deal with combating backlash? I never try to be controversial just for the sake of being controversial. I well, comedy is an artistic outlet for 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 my uh, for my emotions, mm. my 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 thoughts, my observations, my frustrations, and it's, it's not always going to be pretty. <laughs> so if it if it has the effect of being controversial. Um, so be it. I'm not going to back down from something I believe in. I'm always, I try to be as open to healthy criticism as, as much as I possibly can. I don't want to be one of those, because uh, now it's also become a cliche, the, the anti-PC comedian that's all, oh, fuck those woke people, man. They're just offended at everything. And it's like, no, your comedy actually just sucks. So, <laughs> you know, there's two sides of the coin there. Back, uh, dealing with backlash, look, you just have to sift through what, you believe is valid criticism and what are just unnecessary personal attacks or subjective opinions of of something that you've said or or produced if it is constructive criticism take it on board sometimes it can it can hurt even when it is constructive if someone says look usually i'm a fan of your comedy but this was xyz but then i i think i've gotten quite used to just uh avoiding or or just ignoring relentless criticism that just I, I i can tell this is a person who's just trying to get under my skin or just sees the world very differently to what i do so there's no point reasoning with them and i wouldn't take it on board necessarily i, I sort of observe it as someone who does observational comedy it's always worth observing everything that's transpiring around you in the digital world as well but uh, I try not to let it get to me personally it always can sometimes but sometimes you do just have to you just either ignore or uh, disassociate. Yeah, I mean, at the scale that you're doing your work, I can't imagine it's sustainable to take every single thing personally. No, you can't. I mean, there's so many comments and and messages and uh, dislikes and things coming in. I just, you know, you can't even, it wouldn't be feasible for me to actually read everything anyway. I I tend to look at the like to dislike ratio on, on YouTube videos or say the angry reacts on Facebook just because if if it is extremely lopsided, uh, if, say, there's more than 10% dislikes on the video, then I start to realise, okay, these are the people who do actually follow me and respect what I do and they're not liking my content. So yeah. I might have to think about what I've done or maybe I haven't uh, lived up to the standard that I've, I've set for myself. But when they're just individual messages or p- personal comments, th- these are ones that I just tend to... Ignore you. Look, you're curious. Sometimes you want to look at all the message requests. And, you know, I've made mistakes looking at some just before I'm about to go to sleep. And then, you oh, know, you're oh just, my God. that's what you need melatonin for. Uh, you look, yeah, maybe I do need some <laughs> of that. At the, at the end of the day, I mean, I'm, I'm in a very privileged position. I have a 
incredible audience. You know, I'm pursuing art full time. Uh, how many people can say that? And look, one downside is, yeah, you got to deal with some trolls. You got to deal with some haters, but compared to the positives, it's, it's minuscule. It obviously resonates with a large number of people. So you're obviously doing something right. I like to think so. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So I am new to the comedy scene. I'm keen to hear, and I think some of my listeners would be keen to hear, about what your joke writing process is. How do you kind of observe uh, something and turn that into a skit or turn that into a bit? My uh, process usually starts with an idea or a perspective or a point of view that may be uh, unique or it's a, it's a sort of unspoken truth. So everyone, I, I really love uh, achieving a reaction of, oh, that's so true. I never thought of it that way. So I, I, I try to find observations that everyone might be aware of, but the way it's articulated or the way I can sort of analogize it with something else makes it compelling. And then I actually try to make it funny after that so the first step is coming up with the idea and the concept and then adding the jokes to it that's really interesting i think um comedians tend to have a like every comedian has their own style and some people memorize some people do you improv and not often with stand-up comedy i uh, i do some crowd work but i don't uh no i won't i don't improvise stand-up comedy that's uh that's not an easy feat yeah, and I, I I know a couple of people that improv and freaks me out. <laughs> yeah, they're really impressive when they, when it's done well. I, I I'll workshop, so I might have an idea, or I might have one joke associated with a bit, and then just chat to the crowd a little bit while also trying to you know sift through the thoughts in my, in my mind. But um, no, I, my my improv is actually quite different to my stand up. Um, the stand up is quite meticulous and. Well, I like to think well thought out and, and pre-prepared, whereas the improv, obviously, it's just, you know, no holds barred, go as wild as you want. Do you still do improv, like other than obviously Neil and Friends? Well, I mean, at, at Neil and Friends, the second half of the show uh, has become all improv now. So I'm just as much an improviser now as a, as a comedian. And I just thought this would be an easy way to generate a lot of clips because with improv, you're always coming up with something at least somewhat uh new daniel and i who's a tall guy in all my videos we just uh really enjoyed improv again we did it in high school and and we we were getting better and people really loved it and you really give the audience a, a, a unique experience because they've seen a collection of scenes that no one's ever going to see again there, there, there's something very remarkable about power of improv to entertain and and to engage people, especially a live audience. It's also a bit of an insurance policy for, for, for us because the audience are a lot more forgiving if we mess up in an improv scene. Uh, it's funny for everyone. So. <laughs> That's actually really, really fair. I've never thought about it like that. Kind of to wrap up, what advice would you have for a South Asian comedian breaking into the scene did you face any barriers firstly getting into comedy obviously your rise is meteoric with live stand-up comedy no I don't think I did and I think actually 
I happen to come up in a certain time when you know, people were trying to be very inclusive and, and that can sometimes come across as patronizing and demeaning if you're on the lineup because you're brown, but overall it probably helped me. Uh, it can give you a certain artistic license to talk about things that some other comedians may not be able to talk about, which I actually don't like. I think every comedian of any race should be allowed to talk about whatever they want. And then whether it's funny or not is a different topic altogether. So no, I don't think I felt, I, 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 at least not that I'm aware of, I don't, I don't feel like I faced any barriers in internet or, or stand-up comedy. Uh, when it came to acting and, and media, when was it, 2008, I remember an acting agent basically just said, yeah, there's going to be less opportunities for you because of your ethnicity. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't like the idea of being chosen for a role simply because I'm brown as well. I just would like a world where your talent, you know, regardless of your race, gets you through. Well, I've had someone tell me to my face, like, the reason you were chosen for this panel was because you're different to the other candidates and the other candidates all were white and and I think they specified it. They wanted something that would look good. And I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> Feels like you're a bit of a tick box. Yeah, I find it quite demeaning, actually. I don't really like it. Oh, look, I think most people who have diversity initiatives mean well, but my major criticism with, well, the whole conversation about diversity is that it's only diversity of culture, gender, and sexuality, but it's not actually diversity of ideas, you know, at, at the diversity within the brown community. I mean, there's what? There's over a billion brown people in the world we don't all think the same <laughs> it's very different to say you know a, a poor person growing up in pakistan versus a wealthy brahmin india i mean they're going to be miles apart they're just brown that's the only similarity they have so i actually find that i think that we're not offered the privilege of being able to be nuanced we're kind of this one kind of person and people expect a certain thing from us but it's like there are a lot of us and we, we're all pretty different. Yeah, and I actually found that in many ways uh, quite restrictive as well. So I think that also may have been the, a, another catalyst for why I made fun of woke culture so much because it was I felt like it was quite restrictive. I mean, I obviously am a person of colour. I'm very happy with my you know, Indian heritage and everything, but there's so much more to me. I, I have knowledge about all sorts of different subjects and different ideas and you know, class and experiences and all these things come into play when it comes to identity. But the, the focus is so tantamount on, on just race, ethnicity or culture that it can actually ironically be quite restrictive in my, in my experience. Uh, having said that, I think it's all very well-meaning and uh, coming back to the, to the barriers in, in acting, I, I, when I started, which was now... 13 years ago, there were pretty objective, clear ba barriers uh, in acting. For comedy, no, if anything, I think it may have even arguably an advantage to be, to have a point of difference, good and bad. And I guess on the back of that, the second part of that was what advice would you have oh, yeah. for people who are trying to get into comedy or thinking about it or kind of new to it? Again, biased having come through the internet but i think you got to get on the internet you got to start something online and and look i have a, a great admiration for for the stand-up purists because they're the best stand-up comedians in the country the ones who are just dedicated to the art of stand-up comedy but the internet is just a fantastic easily accessible way 
to get yourself out there. I, I, I just don't understand why uh, more comedians don't take advantage of it. You know, there's no gatekeeper. There's no producer saying, well, you have to say this. You, all you need is an iPhone, quite literally. If, if you're funny, that's my biggest uh, piece of advice. Get on the internet, whatever it may be, whether it's a podcast or, or just comedy clips, and then and then be consistent because I've seen a lot of comedians who start something on the internet and then they don't follow through. So if you're really passionate and dedicated about what, what you want to, about comedy, give yourself three years at least. All right, I'm going to post a sketch once a week and, and really commit to that. Then have the discipline that even when you're having a, a bit of writer's block and you might think, okay, this next video is not that funny. Do I really want to post it? Post it. <laughs> sometimes it's, it's actually about quantity over quality on the internet, sometimes, not always. But um, when you're starting out, I think people have a tendency to overthink it. I think stand-up comedians are, are very intelligent people, but they can also be highly neurotic um, and they, they overthink the content and they overthink the lines in every joke and, oh, if I replace this word here, is the joke going to be as funny? Perfectionism. Look, yeah, I mean, that that's good. And if you're going to be one of the greats, you probably need that. And I definitely have that. But when you're starting out, I think you actually need to tone that down. And, 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 and you know, don't worry too much about necessarily appeasing the people in your social circle. If, if you are gaining traction with a different audience or a different demographic, build on that. And any audience is a good audience. So internet, 100%, that's the biggest, that's the one major piece of advice, specifically for someone who's South Asian and I'm assuming might have sort of strict, let's say they have stereotypically South Asian parents. You don't need to do anything dramatic. I mean, if you do have the pressure to go to uni, it's fine. Like there's plenty of people in the comedy industry that did their degree, but on the side, most university courses, you do still have a lot of free time. So you can still make a video once a week. You can still do open mic gigs. Uh, you can still be honing the craft. Have a backup. Finish the degree. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, it's always, it's always good to sit down and talk with your parents if you feel like they are being unnecessarily strict. But unfortunately, if it gets to the point where they actually just don't let you do comedy, maybe you do have to. I don't know. I don't know. I've never been in that position, and I I, I don't envy people who are. But I I don't think. Look, even pretty strict South Asian parents, I don't think that be you know i don't think they'd disown you if you decided to pursue an artistic although i don't know they're, they're, that's the stereotype but yeah i feel like there is there is a spectrum yeah um yeah. i think what tends to happen is once you make that decision for yourself your parents kind of are upset at the beginning but in the majority of the time they're going to be on board um if you're happy yeah if anything i find the um the the southern east asian comedians or well you know with south and east asian background are very hard working and they're very disciplined when it comes to comedy because they've had that upbringing look don't see it as all just as as the sort of impediment to pursuing an artistic career most likely you'll actually have an advantage once you're in the industry because you've been instilled with this uh very strict work ethic and a lot of comedy is just sitting down and, and having to write and Got in. <laughs> so we, we know all about that. Yeah, rote learning. <laughs> exactly. And then you look at some of the other comedians who are just uh, want to live the rock star lifestyle without the rock star income. <laughs> we'll say that. And then it's not 
necessarily conducive to um, success in the industry. So I love that. No, I think that's a great way to put it because there are advantages of having the upbringing that a lot of us have had in the artistic field, whether that's in comedy or drama or acting or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. So focus on what could be an advantage rather than how it could be a disadvantage. Yeah. Well, Neil, thank you. Um, It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Likewise. Thanks for having me. Everyone can find Neil like all over the internet, just Neil Kohatka everywhere. Yeah. You've got your own podcast, Sex Cells. Yeah, I've got two. I've got, yeah, Sex Cells, uh, C-E-L-L-S and Neil and Jordan. Plenty of content for everyone to enjoy if you're in Sydney in lockdown or wherever you are. Oh, amazing. Well, thanks so much for chatting. I'm, I'm excited to come to Neil and Friends once lockdown lifts. I'm keen to keen to see it live. Awesome. Well, I'm definitely itching to get back on stage. So whether they're funny, they'll be full of energy. And if it's not funny, it's improv. So Exactly. So it's funny then. It's funny. Thanks again for having me. And you can follow us at Uncultured Pod on Instagram. See you next week.